and I hope you're doing well. Beautiful, beautiful week here in West Michigan. Just uh, loved the temperatures of this past week. And I know many of you, this time of year, you're getting ready to send kids uh, back to school. Uh, Chris and I, our lives at this season of our life does not revolve around getting kids back to school, but once upon a time, it did. These were our three right here. Sarah, Andrew, and Alex, born kind of in pretty quick uh, succession. And I remember, I remember taking that picture. It's kind of chilly out, beautiful day. You kind of see them with their arms crossed. That's because their mean father drew them out into the cold for a snapshot opportunity with a real camera with something called film. Look it up later. <laughs> and so those were our three. And uh, Chris and I, we had... A decision to make when they were younger than that, and it was just that thought, kind of a morbid thought and not a happy thought, but just kind of thought, if something happens to us, who would we trust to raise our kids? And so when they were younger than that, we found ourselves sitting in a law office, uh, drawing up a will and testament. And that early will was just, I just the driving question was, if something happens to us in the unlikely event, radically unlikely event that we were like, I don't know, killed in the same accident or something, who would we want to raise our children? And that was, went into the will. But we had to revise our will years and years later when the question was no longer uh, who would raise our kids because I think our daughter Sarah was in like college age and our sons were on the you know, edge of graduating from high school. And so it was just, they were pretty much raised. But it, the question was, if something tragic happened to Chris and I at the same time, uh, if something happens to me, the estate goes to Chris. If something happens to us, the estate would go to our children. And so we wanted to hammer that out in that uh, question. And so I remember sitting with the attorney, and so the attorney said, okay, let me get this right. If something happens to both of you, you want the money to go to your kids. We said, yes, right. And uh, he asked a question, and it was three words. It was a three-word question. And the question was this, <clears throat> all at once. We're like, what? Now, I forget, how, I have no idea how much we were worth at the time. It was equity in our house. I do remember that we had a very healthy like life insurance policy. And so between the life insurance policy and the equity in our house, there was a little bit that the kids would come into. And so let's just say, I don't know what the amount was. Let's just say $200,000 a piece. The attorney's looking at us and saying, so if you were, something were to happen, a tragedy like when your youngest is 19, you would like want your 19-year-old to get a lump sum of like $200,000 at one time. And it took us about one second to go, nope. No. And so we go, what do you recommend? He says, well, some people do multiple disbursements. Maybe the first disbursement is, you know, when they're early 20s, but then a second disbursement in their mid-20s, and then a third disbursement in their, uh, let's say, early 30s, and that way they come into the money when they, as they mature. Now, listen, if you're listening to this right now when you're 19, you're probably going, what? That's a great idea. I'd make incredible decisions. And if you're listening to this and you're 29, you're probably going, uh... I think I'd make different decisions at 29 than I would have at 19. Here's the deal. This, this conversation, this sermon is not about how to set up a will and how to take care of your family. It has to do with this. We wanted to help our kids. We just knew that there was the possibility of a way where we thought we'd be helping them when it might actually hurt them. See, we, with, with a financial legacy to our kids, we wanted them to be able to do something with their lives. We didn't want them to put them in a position where they could do nothing with their lives. 
a cash infusion at a really early age might actually postpone their adulting, taking on very important responsibilities. You know, maybe we wanted the money, I don't know, to help them, you know, pay off some student loans or get into, uh, you know, a down payment for a house or buy a very reliable car to get back and forth to reliable work. We didn't want to put them in a position where they didn't have to work or have to take on adult responsibility. So all, all I'm saying here is this. Sometimes our very attempt at helping someone we might end up harming the very person we're trying to help. And that's really the purpose behind this series, which is helping without hurting. It's my hope that the family of Ada Bible Church, that we sense this drive to become more and more helpful in meeting the needs of our world, but at the same time, just to get smarter about it and to get sharper about it and to get wiser at actually helping the people that we intend to help. So this series, Helping Without Hurting. And week after week, we've gone back to the same story from Scripture, and our conversation will begin there today, and it's the story of Ruth and Naomi. And so we're kind of taking laps around this story, and each weekend kind of pinpointing a different event or a different principle. And so uh, those of you that have been with us the last two weeks should probably be able to quote this with me at this point, but uh, uh, story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi lives in Israel. That dot there is Bethlehem. It's about 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. Naomi lives in Bethlehem with her husband, and with her two adult sons. There is a famine, there's a food shortage, and they leave the country. They cross the Jordan River and they go to the land of Moab. And there the two adult sons get married. And so this family of four has become a family of six. Then massive tragedy strikes this family. First, the husband dies. His, son, his name is Elimelech. Elimelech dies, her husband. Then her two sons die, Malon and Kilion. And now you're left with like three widows. And like in that culture, with very limited opportunity for work for women, you just kind of go, it's game over for this family. Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, goes back home. Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, she tells her mother-in-law. Now, Ruth is from Moab. She is a Moabite. She tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, this incredible speech. Listen, I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I'll go back to Israel with you. Your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. And when you die, I'm not heading back home. When you die, I want them to put my body right there next to yours. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. And so this these two widows, this, my friends, this is a story of extreme tragedy, suffocating tragedy, and desperate poverty. So these two widows travel back to Bethlehem, and it's there that we find Ruth going out into the fields. It's harvest, it's barley harvest time, and harvesting is an, an imprecise science. The harvesters go through, they gather, uh, they, they, they cut the grain, then some girls go through and pick up the grain and they bundle it up. And if you found yourself in the field of a very generous landowner, they would let you kind of come along behind the group and pick up a piece here and a piece there, a stock here and a stock there and be able to go home and make some bread uh, for yourself. But you had to find yourself in the right field because all of the grain that you picked up cut into the bottom line of the person that owned the field. And so Ruth is there. There's a term for this. It's called gleaning. She's gleaning in a field. Happens to be owned by the, a guy by the name of Boaz. And Boaz, 
Boaz shows her just incredible kindness. It's over-the-top kindness. Feel free to come back to this field day after day after day. I've told my guys not to harass you and to send you away. Stick close with my girls. If you get thirsty, the water jars are over there. It's just this over-the-top kindness. And from this story, I think we get just some incredible clues as to how to help. And in some cases, who to help. Now, as we embark on this conversation today, I just need to begin by saying that I cannot fathom the complexity that exists in some of your lives. That is, you are attempting to help someone. Maybe it's in your family. And you just be looking back at me and say, Jeff, you can't imagine how complicated our situation is. And I, I don't think I can. I cannot fathom how lost some of you might feel in how to help someone in an incredibly, incredibly complicated situation. And so my, I don't think I'm going to answer all your questions today. Well, what about that? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? I don't think I'll be able to answer some of your most significant questions. What I do hope to do is look at some principles that can help us reframe the questions. I'll be happy today, not simply to answer the questions, but if we walk away with better questions and are able to form those questions in a way that provides some guidance, I'll be really, really happy. So I'm not going to attempt to answer whether or not you should help the guy by giving him a few bucks when he's sitting at the freeway exit holding up the cardboard sign. I'm not going to answer that for you. I'm not going to answer whether or not you should have your nephew move back in with you again. I'm not even going to answer whether or not your 47-year-old should still be on your cell phone plan but to offer some conversations around this issue to help us ask better questions and frame better questions. So three, three principles today I think are super, super helpful in this question about how to help in a way that's helpful, and in some cases, who to help. All right, uh, principle number one just has to do with honoring positive movement. Honoring positive movement. And so back in the field, Ruth's picking up grain there. This guy Boaz comes over. Hey, come back to my field day after day. Stick with my girls. I've told my guys not to mess with you. The water jars are over there. And she just kind of melts. She, this is such over-the-top kindness. She's got a question. And the question is this, why? Why? Why are you, why are you showing me such over-the-top kindness? I mean, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, this is the way she frames it. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would take notice of me? A foreigner. Remember, she's not from there. Ruth speaks with an accent. Why are you showing me such extreme kindness? Now, stop there because there are a dozen different ways that Boaz could answer that question. And I'm a little stunned by the way he answers the question. Boaz could have said, because you are needy and it's our goal to help the needy. That's not how he answers he could have said, you're a desperate, helpless widow, and it's, we love helping desperate, helpless widows. That's not how he answers the question. He could have said, in every culture, there are those who will find themselves in a disadvantaged, vulnerable position. You are disadvantaged and vulnerable, so we're helping you. That's not how he answers a question. He's showing such over-the-top kindness, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, she asked, why are you so kind to me? This is Boaz's answer. Are you ready? Verse 11. 
Boaz replied, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the day your husband died. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you didn't know before. He says, I've heard about you. I have heard about the over-the-top sacrifice you made in trying to take care of your mother-in-law, and I want to match that with over-the-top kindness for you. Understand something, Boaz is not simply helping her because she's needy, he's honoring her movement. He's rewarding her positive movement. That's the answer that he gives. Now, I use the word reward there because it occurs in the next verse. Boaz says, he's like he gives us, he throws this blessing on her. It says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be, here we go, richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May our God reward you. And the beautiful part of the story is Boaz is rewarding her. As he says, may the, yeah, well, God bless you. Boaz wants to be part of that blessing to honor Ruth's courageous movement. Boaz is saying, I want to step up because you're stepping up. Does this sound strange to you? Boaz says, I've heard. I've been told. I've heard. Think about that statement. I've heard. What is it like to honor someone's movement? You've heard that they've begun to pursue a second job in order to provide for their family. And something in you goes, how can I help? But you're not just driven by their need, you're driven by their movement. This is legitimate, if this is legal. Have heard, I've heard that you've now been sober for three months. I don't know how difficult this has been to break away from the patterns of the past. I just want to applaud what you're doing. Uh, three months of sobriety, how can I help? You're not simply honoring their need, you're honoring their movement. How can I help? How can I help? You're honoring someone's positive movement. So just two things. Number one, I believe this is legal. It is legal to take somebody else's initiative and effort into consideration when trying to figure out how to help them. And secondly, if I could play the flip side of that, my friends, it is almost impossible to help somebody who's stuck if they are comfortable staying stuck. It is almost impossible to help somebody who's stuck if they are really comfortable staying stuck. Now, if this feels like wrong to you, like you're rewarding somebody's movement, I could frame your apprehension as something like this. Jeff, doesn't the Bible teach unconditional love? You're supposed to love people no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing. I would just suggest that there might be a difference between unconditional love and unconditional help. It's possible to go, I will continue to love you no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, but that's different than I will help you no matter what you're doing. Because it is almost impossible to help someone who is stuck when that person is very comfortable remaining stuck. My friends, Ruth has been walloped. 
suffocating grief, paralyzing grief, but she is not paralyzed. She finds her way into the, into the field. She comes back with Naomi. This wonderful woman is moving even in her grief and disorientation. And Boaz steps forward and he's honoring her positive movement. And so another apprehension might just be, Jeff, I've always heard that if you see a need, God is calling you to meet that need. Isn't that true? No. In fact, uh, principle number two is this, that uh, need does not necessitate call. If for no other reason, then the needs of our world are like infinite and your time and resources are finite. If you open your eyes to the needs of our world, there is a tsunami of need, and yet you are dealing with limited time and resources, which force us to focus on where to help. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna leave the field, we're gonna leave Ruth and Naomi, and we're gonna leave 1000 BC where that story happens. We're gonna fast forward the tape to after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And there is a Jesus community, it's a young Jesus community, but it's growing and it's in the city of Ephesus. Now this is after Jesus crucifixion and resurrection. Just on a map here, Ephesus on the lower right, it was a seaport on the, what would that be, the Eastern Aegean Sea. And uh, the apostle Paul spends like three years of his life establishing a healthy Jesus community in the city of Ephesus. Uh, in an artist's rendition here, uh, based upon the archeological find and the building foundations that remain, this is what Ephesus could have looked like back in the day. Paul spends three years there, then Paul leaves. When he leaves, he deputizes his understudy, a guy by the name of Timothy, to begin to guide this church, this Jesus community in Ephesus. And I think Timothy feels overwhelmed and overrun by the vast human need that Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman world. It's a metropolitan center with all the problems cities have including desperate poverty. And I think Timothy is totally overwhelmed in how to serve the city of Ephesus with a Jesus community that has limited resources. And I think there's one particular area that is plaguing him, and that area is how to take care of widows in the city of Ephesus. Now, when you, we need to go back to their world, right? Uh, when you hear the word, now a widow can be any age, but the image that might jump into your mind when you think of the term widow is you might be thinking of her. And the purposes of our conversation today, I need you to think also about her. Because of like life expectancy in the first century, if the church is gonna care for widows, man, there are 24-year-old widows and 32-year-old widows and 38-year-old widows. And then you have 65-year-old widows. And if word gets out, that this Jesus community, don't worry. If you've lost your husband, we'll take care of your food, we'll take care of your clothing, we'll take care of your shelter. The line will form all the way down the street and around the corner, and it will swamp the limited resources of this small Jesus group. So in 1 Timothy, in your New Testament, Timothy is pastoring this community in Ephesus, and Paul is giving him counsel and advice on basically how to do triage in this situation and how to focus on, I don't even like the question, which widows to help? 
Well, you're supposed to help everybody. They couldn't. They, 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 they couldn't. So of this vast need, where is Timothy supposed to focus? And so Paul talks about this thing. It might sound strange to you, but it was very real to Paul and Timothy. And it's just called the list of widows. How, who goes on the list? And the list is, we will support you permanently. You don't have to do anything. We'll provide you food, we'll provide you clothing, and we'll provide you shelter. Who makes it on the list of widows and who shouldn't? And it was a triage issue to try to figure out how to focus the limited resources of that, of that church. So list the, who goes on the list of widows and who doesn't? And Paul gives Timothy three criteria. Now, I'm not saying that these criteria should be your criteria in whether or not to hurt people. I just want you to see that there were criteria in that situation where they got to go, overwhelming need, limited resources. We got to figure out how to focus our energies on who we should help and how. So these were the three criteria. Criteria number one was family. Paul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. That widow, wait, wait a second. She's got kids and grandkids in the area? No, 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 no. It's not the church's job to take care of her. It's her family's job to take care of her. Criteria number one, does she have family? Now, next weekend, we're going to drill into that one as talking about family as the first line of defense and how honoring it is to God and how pleased God is when we attempt to support ourselves and the people connected to us in family. So that's the first criteria. Whoa, 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 she's got kids? She's got grandkids? No, 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 no. She should not be in this line waiting for help from the church. That's her, that's her family's job, criteria number one. Criteria number two was age. There was kind of an age break. And criteria number three, what's criteria number three? It's reputation. How did she live her life? So these are the three criteria. Family, secondly, that age thing, uh, he says this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, no widow may be, put on the, may be put on the what? On the list of widows that don't worry, we'll take care of you permanently unless she is over 60. So that was the age cutoff. Why? We had to pick an age somewhere in there, but at 60, a widow would be much less likely to remarry and at 60, a widow in their culture would be much less likely to be able to find and do meaningful paid work. And so he said, okay, let's, let's pick 60 at that area where it's really hard in their culture for someone to make a fresh start and to start over. So Timothy, draw the line there. That's, so there's three things. There's family, and then there was age. What was the last one? What was the last one? Reputation. This one might stun you. He said, over at least 60, and then he says, and has been faithful to her husband and is known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Criteria number three, how did she live? Paul, in 1 Timothy 5, is coaching Timothy to reward life movement. Of all the human need that's out there, who has demonstrated consistent, faithful, over-the-top movement. And Timothy, now in this situation, desperate situation, how are you going to reward that? So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like uh, if you're at 60, if you're part of the Jesus community, you're age 60, and you've lost your husband, and you don't, you don't have children or grandkids to step in, and if you have devoted your life with a spirit of 
Serving and generosity is kind of like, okay, sister, you can go on the list. Don't worry. Don't worry. You don't have to do anything. We will take care of your food, your lodging, and your, uh, your food, your lodging, and your clothes. But again, it's not that we use those criteria. It's just the power of seeing that they had criteria and they had to in order to focus. If there's one thing I just want you to get from this point, it's just this. Need does not necessitate call. Just because you witness a need, you can't jump at every need that you see. <laughs> this point is not for those of you who are helping nowhere. You don't need to hear this part. This point is for those of you that are trying to help everywhere and still feeling guilty that you're not doing enough. Because when you witness a human need, you just rush toward it and you find your life fragmented, you're spread way too thin, you're simultaneously serving and exhausted, and also at the same time, I'm just not doing enough, I'm just not doing enough, I'm just not doing enough. A short list I have made of needs and opportunities in your own backyard, assisting with affordable housing, tutoring in English as a second language, job training, budget counseling, accessible healthcare, after-school programs, helping someone re-enter after incarceration, mentoring teenage moms, mentoring fatherless dads, coaching someone who is attempting to break away from an addiction. I could have built, the it's like the list goes on and on and on and on. It's like we're surrounded by infinite need and we have limited resources. And my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is just pick something. Maybe two somethings, but not everything. And be able to go in this season of my life, in this season of my life, with the awareness I have of my abilities, my interests, and what I might kind of just sense is God's calling right now. I will pour myself into this family. I will pour myself into that couple. I will become deeply devoted to the future of that teenager. I will invest in that student. Focus. Focus, focus. There is a statement that Jesus said. It, it occurs in a prayer that he prayed, which I'm just telling you, as a pastor, I have found incredibly liberating, incredibly, incredibly freeing. The night that Jesus gets arrested, he's walking with his disciples and he starts to pray, and it's a long prayer. You would only find this in like John chapter 16, 17, John's gospel. And he's praying, and part of Jesus' prayer, hours before he will die, this is what he prays. He prays, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by, by finishing the work you gave me to do. That's huge to me. God, I, I honored you. I brought you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. I say that because not every blind person was seeing. Not every paralyzed person was walking. Not every demon-plagued person had been delivered from that demonic influence. And the disciples, for goodness sake, do not even look totally discipled. 
Peter is going to deny Jesus hours later. Yeah, never met the guy. And yet Jesus goes, I finished the work. Help me. I finished the work. What? You gave me to do. I hope you find that those of you, not those of you who are doing nothing, helping nobody, but those of you trying to help everybody. Listen, my friends. There is never enough time to do everything I want to do. I think there is always enough time to do what God is actually calling me to do. But this requires focus, focus, focus. Okay, Jeff, because after you focus and once you figure out, oh, it's that family, it's that couple, it's that teenager, it's that student, that's where you're going to be really, really helpful. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I might just move in and create problems by the way I help. This is why this is a confusing conversation. So principle three is the flip side of principle one. Principle one is encourage positive movement. Principle number three is don't encourage negative movement. Don't encourage negative movement. (laughs) My dear friends, Christians specialize in giving stuff away. I have to realize that my very generosity in helping a person might prevent that person from stepping into responsibility that should be theirs. So, uh, don't encourage negative movement. And what we're going to do is we're going to drop back to Ephesus and that widow conversation where, okay, the list of widows. Uh, Family, does she have family? No, okay. Uh, 60, uh, okay, what was the lifestyle? Because you want to honor forward movement. And then he goes to the younger widows here, which is this hard conversation for the 26-year-old widow, for the 32-year-old widow. And so uh, Paul would write this. um, He would say, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. I do not think Paul is talking here about providing immediate care from someone who was walloped by a sudden tragedy. Don't worry, we'll take care of you for weeks. I think what Paul is saying here is this is not a great long-term plan. If there is a, let's just say, a 26-year-old widow. So let's bring the picture back up. This woman loses her husband, making the promise, we will support you indefinitely. You're 26, we'll provide all that you need when you're 32, when you're 38, when you're 42. Paul is here going like, I think that is a mistake. Because someone might be at an age where it's really, really hard to make a fresh start and other people need to be encouraged to make a fresh start. Timothy, don't promise permanent support. We need to remember when we treat capable people as if they're helpless, it doesn't do anybody any favors. And Paul will go on to say, listen, if you look at a whole group of women and say, listen, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. So I can just go home and what? Sit around all day? He said, you may have just created a situation where people have way too much time on their hands. Way too much time just for conversation. And not all of that conversation will be helpful. He said, some people will just become busybodies. Paul, don't put them in a position where there's nothing to do constructively year after year 
after your, Timothy, don't do that. So there's a, a book that's been incredibly helpful to me in the uh, c- construction of my thoughts along these terms. It's, a, it's by Brian Fickert, and it's uh, a book called When Helping Hurts. And he's got like rule number one. Can you read it out loud with me? Ready? Do not do for people what they can do for themselves. One more time. Ready? Do not do for people what they can do for themselves. Now, he's not talking there about chivalry, courtesy, or hospitality. Why should I open the door for them? They can open their own dang door. It's not what he's saying here. It's not courtesy. It's not, what are you doing? I'm going to take some chocolate chip cookies into the new neighbors. Hey, they've got a stove. Remember? Don't do for people what they can do for themselves. It's not talking about hospitality here. What he's talking about here is carrying people that could be walking. (laughs) What he's talking about here is carrying people who could be walking. And you think, man, he's kind of tough on younger widows here. No, no, no. He's kind of tough on everybody. Uh, Travel with me up to Thessalonica, from uh, Ephesus up to Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians of your Bible, he's counseling this church on how not to feed certain hungry people in the congregation. Be stunned by this. Paul writes this, for even when we were with you, because Paul traveled through Thessalonica, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. It doesn't say unable to work. It's not a severe mental health issue. It's not a catastrophic disability. It's not old age. The person, if they're just hanging out all day in the town square and then they're coming to the church for meals, he goes, stop it. Don't do that. And then he goes on, just two more slides here. We hear that some among you, we're talking in the Jesus community, are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. And I think he's talking about dudes here. This is no longer a widow conversation. And then this next thing, such people we command and we urge in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. He's like your Depression-era grandpa here yelling, get a job. But he's coaching the church in Thessalonica just to say, listen, you might be empowering people to live radically unproductive lives, and it's not helpful for anybody. Work is good, and it is a gift, and it helps us become the people God created us to be. Principle number three, don't do for people what they can do. Don't carry people that could be walking. Encourage them to walk. This is hard work. What I'm trying to say here is that the best help someone can give me, in many cases, is to help me own my own situation. If my finances are a wreck, my marriage is a mess, or my career is in jeopardy, the best help I can receive is the help that moves me toward taking and owning personal responsibility. Years back, we had a old guy in our congregation, his name was Carl. And Carl was phenomenally helpful. He and his wife had been missionaries in Japan for a number of years. They came back to the States. He had, she had dementia. Uh, Carl had a broken down body, but his mind was sharp and he was wise. And so he would walk into the church building midweek with a cane walking very slowly and he would sit down and he would meet with couples in crisis. And his wisdom was just priceless. And so one couple that, and Kyle was probably 80 plus or minus, uh, one couple that he met with, he said, listen, 
I can see what challenge you're in. This is what I need you to do. This is a psalm, and I need you to read this psalm every morning when you get up and just focus on it. And then I gave them a worksheet. I need you to work through these five questions, and then we can meet again. A couple weeks later, his phone rings. It's a crisis call. It's the guy. I got to come in. She's threatening to leave. And so... Carl parks in the parking lot, gets out his cane, walks slowly into the building, sits across from the guy, and the guy says, well, this is what, Carl says, stop, stop. That psalm that I asked you to read each day, have you been doing that? No, I haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, That worksheet with those questions to answer and to focus on, have you done that? No, 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 uh, but I'm going to get around to that. And Carl stood up. And he said, this appointment is over. I'm working harder on your marriage than you are. I've asked you to do these things, and you're not doing them. When you do them, we will talk again. And got his cane and walked back to his car. He's like, whoa. I can't believe someone at Ada Bible Church would do that. He should have been more loving. This was loving. Because he was helping this guy take the responsibility that he could for the situation. And it wasn't relationship over. It's just, I will step forward and help you. But you need to step forward and do these basic things I'm asking you to do. It's honoring forward movement and not empowering no movement. Which, by the way, is great advice. If your sixth grader ever comes to you and asks you to buy him a drum set. Because my sixth grader, Alex, did come to me and ask me to buy him a drum set. Dad, will you buy me a drum set? And in my mind, it's not that he would play it loudly in the house. It's that it would go unplayed. That's what bothered me. I could just see this thing sitting in the corner of the basement collecting dust. And so in a moment of parental brilliance, I said, I'll pay for half. Because if this was like 600 bucks, there was no way my sixth grader was going to come up with 300 bucks. And he did. He turned into a miser. It's like birthday money. It all went in the shoebox under the bed. Hey, who wants to mow the lawn? Ten bucks. Alex's hand goes up. You know, that goes into the shoebox. Saved month after month after month after month. Took a year or a little bit over a year. He anteed up with his $300. And we said, no, forget it. Let this be a lesson to you. Never trust anybody, especially family members. No, so we stepped up with our, we stepped up with our $300. Here's the deal. uh, What I like about this story is that my movement matched his movement. He was growing in personal responsibility, and we were stepping up and saying, we want to help that, and we want to honor that. Uh, It wasn't just doing something for him. It was doing something with him. He got to grow in the process, and we got to help. So I said in week one, and I know some of you are parents, a bunch of you aren't, but those of you with children, I just need to say once again, just remember, we're not raising kids. We're raising adults. We want kids to grow into increasing levels of responsibility and self-sufficiency. So back to the picture we looked at at the very beginning, my kids, grade school, standing out on the deck in my backyard, I cannot tell you how dizzyingly fast those kids became those kids. 
and you turn around a couple times and those kids become those kids. At breakneck speed. And I just have to remember, I'm not simply trying to meet needs. I'm in the business of developing people. All I've been trying to say is this, as you step in the calling of helping becoming the person that God created you to be, ask the wisest questions you can ask so that the person that you're helping can become who God created them to be. This, this I believe, is helping without hurting. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade in our other uh, campuses as well. Just so pleased we're together today. I want to offer this prayer as we move into our week. Gracious God, once again, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your discernment. We need your still voice to whisper to us where to focus. We need courage in where to move and where not to move. We ask that you would transform us one day at a time into the people that you created us to be in lives that would honor the Lord Jesus who came here for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. We'll see you next week.